Last night I tried to keep the homily a little short because we were in the midst of the, the mists and the sleet and everything. And uh, I did say that I, I would hope that I'd be done with the homily within half an hour. And I don't know if they thought I was joking or what, but uh, there, there is so much in this short gospel passage today for us to reflect on. There's so much impact that it can have on our spiritual lives that honestly, half an hour might be too short even yet, but I will keep it under 15 minutes, I hope. But as we gather today, of course, a church every year on this first Sunday of Lent gives us the temptation narratives of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, St. John doesn't contain a temptation narrative. But uh, last, last year as we gathered, we heard Mark's version, and, and Mark doesn't give us uh, the content of the temptations, but St. Luke and St. Matthew do with a minor difference. St. Matthew and St. Luke change the order from each other of the second and third temptations. Perhaps a lot to do with sacred geometry or geology. Because in Matthew's Gospel, mountains are places of encounter with God, and so the temptation ends on a mountain as Satan shows him all the kingdoms. But in St. Luke, everything begins and ends in Jerusalem. If you uh, read the Gospel of St. Luke uh, beginning to end, you'll realize that at the very beginning, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple, and at the very end, they're found in the temple worshiping God, the disciples, the apostles. And time and again, things begin and end in the temple. I personally think St. Luke is most correct, but that's just me, my opinion. But even more so, take into consideration the context of why uh, we would have this on this day. We, too, are entering a desert period of this Lenten season. Just as a side note, uh, it used to be custom, uh, not one that the church did not approve of, but water would disappear because we were entering the desert and there's no water in the desert. Well, anyone that knows deserts know you don't go into the desert without water. But Jesus is in the desert for 40 days, fasting. And uh, every year when we announce the, the fast of uh, once one uh, normal meal and maybe two smaller meals not enter, and that's not the kind of fast Jesus entered. In fact, it says he ate nothing for 40 days. And I think it's probably, there's a number of understatements in the, in the Gospels. My, one of my favorites is after the uh, four days that uh, Lazarus is in the tomb. Lord, he's been in the tomb four days now. There's going to be a stench, you think? But here, he was hungry. And Satan comes and starts to tempt at that weakness. Where else would Satan begin his assault than on the greatest weakness? First, we have to realize that temptation in and of itself is not a sin because temptation can come from two different places. It can come externally. It can come from Satan and uh, those around us. A good example of that is after a nice meal when the host or hostess comes out with dessert and you really shouldn't have that piece, but oh, they keep saying, oh, and it looks so good. And that temptation there, right? External temptation. Inside us, we might say, no, I don't need that. I don't need that piece of dessert. 
But it can also be an internal temptation of, ooh, not only do I need that piece of dessert, but I need a third one, and maybe a fifth one. Because temptation comes externally from others, and it comes internally because we are born into a brokenness. In fact, two years ago, in cycle A, with Matthew's Gospel, we hear of Adam and Eve and the temptation that they experienced. Did God really say what he said? Nah, he's just jealous. He doesn't want you to become like him, like we could ever become like God without God acting first. Because of original sin, we're born into brokenness. And and, uh, that brokenness has, uh, of course, death and disease, but a darkened intellect where we don't think as sharply, as readily as we should. We rationalize ourselves with lies that sound rational, as Deacon Ralph Poyle would point out, rational lies. And we desire things that we know are not good for us, disordered attractions, disordered desires, and we justify it in all sorts of ways. That's concupiscence. St. John, in his letter, tells us there's three particular concupiscences, the sin of the flesh, of the, uh, um, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we see that all with that apple narrative, by the way. How Eve looks at the apple and says, oh, it looks so good for food. It's appealing to the eye and good for acquiring wisdom. We see all three in our own lives if we're honest. And as we look at these particular temptations, we find Satan tempting the Lord in all three ways. Again, because the Lord is at his weakest, perhaps. But we have to remember, even at his weakest, the Lord is so much stronger because he is God. So while he experiences that external temptation of Satan, he doesn't give way to it. And the method which he uses is one that he invites us to use. He, by nature, us by his grace, of course, So Satan comes, if you are the Son of God, command this bread, this stone to become bread. Seems like a reasonable thing, right? It seems reasonable that if he's hungry, if he is the Son of God, he has that power. It's not that Satan is questioning his identity, but he's, he's saying, you have the power to do this, take it for yourself, turn this stone into bread. Man does not live by bread alone, Jesus quotes him from Deuteronomy. And Satan moves on. I'll give you all these kingdoms. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Lust of the eyes, if there ever was. See, lust of the eyes is a desire to surround ourselves with good things. That's why so many of us want that fancy car and that nice house beyond what we really need for just comfort. The, the comfort of our bodies. We want, we want good and beautiful things. That's why we surround ourselves with art so often. Although art on the good side reminds us of the beauty of God, the transcendence, something that transcends this world. Taken out of context, lust of the eyes can lead to worship 
of things that are not of God. And of course, Jesus reads right through it, and you shall worship the Lord your God, you shall serve him alone, again, quoting for Deuteronomy. And then, of course, in St. Luke, all things begin and end at the temple. Satan takes him up to the parapet of the temple, the highest point from the temple top to the very bottom of the valley that uh, the uh, temple was built around. It's built on a hill. If you really are the Son of God, throw yourself down. After all, it says in Psalms, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. With your hands, they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan, being ever not so bright, doesn't read on in that psalm. We just heard it in our psalm response this morning. You shall trample the lion and the dragon. Who's the dragon but Satan himself? Can you imagine quoting scripture to the Son of God? How stupid that is? Satan thinking that's going to work? And Jesus, of course, cuts right through it and replies again from Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I am absolutely convinced that Satan, knowing exactly what he was doing, crafted these particular temptations for Jesus to try to trap him. And if we read the rest of the scriptures, which I, of course, encourage you to do, if you read uh, carefully, you begin to understand something that Satan did not. Before Jesus' ministry ends, he takes five loaves and multiplies it and feeds a crowd of 5,000. Much more magnificent than taking a stone and turning it into bread. He takes bread and transforms it into his body. He takes wine and transforms it into his blood. Much more mysterious and satisfying as we come to the Eucharist, which he gave us as a memorial. Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, receives all the kingdoms, not in an act of worship to Satan, but gives them as an act of worship to God, his Father. And what is more glorious, prideful of life, perhaps, than to rise from the dead? The God, the Father, raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Satan wasn't being very intelligent. May God protect us for, for thinking that and saying that. But when it comes down to it, the, the demonic is dumb. We shouldn't taunt them. But they're, they're dumb. They, they think by quoting scripture, by tempting Satan, that, that somehow they're going to get their way. They don't. And the same is true for us. When he comes to us and tries to tempt us, I've told people this, we should tell, remind Satan where he's going. And if you don't know, it's very easy. Tell him to go to hell. Because that's where he's bound. But we shouldn't, uh, as exactly as Jesus do, does, we should do exactly as he does and not quibble with him. Notice Jesus doesn't really directly respond to him. He just quotes scripture time and again and again. And the same is true for us. To not get in this dialogue with Satan, that was perhaps Eve's greatest fault. The greatest flaw. 
that she thought she could communicate with the snake, the serpent, instead of just ignoring him and saying, God the Father has said. The same is true for us in our temptation. To not give in this dialogue with Satan, not give him the time of day even, and just simply to be so filled with scriptures, so filled with church teaching, so filled with Jesus Christ that we have no time for him. And while we deal with concupiscence in all its forms, the more we can resist the external temptations, the more we put our internal life in order. That all those disordered attachments and distractions and and, uh, evils that we would tend towards, the more we fill ourselves with God's grace, allowing him to fill us rather with his grace, the more we resist external temptation, the more we're able to deal with the internal temptation. This great season of Lent, these days of 40 days of fasting and prayer, not fasting perhaps as arduously as Jesus did, but these are great days for us to unite our will to God the Father's will, which is precisely why Jesus enters the desert in the first place to unite his will more perfectly, although it had always been perfectly united, to prepare himself for his ministry so that as Satan leaves him, you have to wonder about that, leaves him on the parapet of the temple, Jesus begins his ministry with the words that we ourselves need to hear, repent and believe in the gospel.